0: Welcome to our Tuesday night Bible study. Tonight we are going to focus on the character of Elisha. Last week we dove a little bit into Elijah and um, we're going to start on Elisha tonight. All right, so let's get into it. I want to start off by talking about Elisha's name. Elisha's name means my God is salvation. So from the start, here's what we know about our God. He is very strategic in putting people in particular places and particular time periods to bring about salvation in the earth. Elijah, he was going through a season of intense persecution. Um, He was feeling a lot of spiritual attack and depression, and he was crying out to God and said that he was the only one. He felt like he was the only one that was still upholding the name of Jehovah God and still living righteously and being zealous for God. And God said, oh, no, no. God reminded him that he is ever long suffering and that not only was he not the only one, but that he has preserved multiple people, multiple witnesses um, and he does that to save. He is very long suffering and merciful. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. So God always has a representative, and he keeps to his ultimate purpose, which is to save. So Elijah's name, to live by that name, my God, is salvation. It means to trust in the only one who can truly save, who can truly deliver and set free. Not just physically, but spiritually, mentally, emotionally, etc. God is salvation. God gives salvation and he is salvation. With God living inside of a believer, The activity of God is available and present to be in every believer's life. But as believers, we have to grab a hold of the saving power that God gives through faith in him alone. Elisha lived out his name. He trusted in God to do just what he said and to be who he says that he is. He trusted God to be a God of his word. That level of trust in God brings about eternal promises and it brings about a supernatural strength. And that's what we see displayed in Elisha's life. So where did Elisha come from? Elisha was the son of Shaphat. Uh, He was from Abel Meholah of the Jordan Valley. This is found in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. So Elisha was a farmer by trade. The Bible gives us a brief description of what Elisha was found to be doing. And in that description, we can kind of deduce that his family was a family of means. So they had land, they had wealth. Um, This is found in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. It says, so Elijah departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelve. So most likely Elijah lived a comfortable life with a future that was laid out before him. The call of God, however, comes with a great level of sacrifice. So there's no, I'm going to serve the Lord, but I'm also going to maintain my own desires and my own way of living. That's just not a thing when it comes to accepting the call of God on your life. The level of sacrifice that God has for us is individual and what God has required of us personally is very needful for us specifically and it's handcrafted by God. In Elisha's time by him saying yes to God meant turning away from what was most likely a life of creature comfort. And it, will mean the same for us. It won't look the same, but it will mean the same. But to fulfill the calling that God has for you is the greatest purpose and fulfillment that you will find in this life. Because being in the will of God is the greatest satisfaction that you could ever have, no matter what the cost is. It is a journey to get to that mindset, but that is what God has for us. So what was Elisha's mission? He is known for his service to God and his service to God's people. Elisha continued on in Elijah's footsteps in ministering to God's chosen people, but his ministry wasn't identical to Elijah's. Even though both prophets addressed the kings of their time, Elisha was known to have more involvement in the politics of his time, and he also had a lot more influence with the governing ruler of that time. He was also connected to the people in a more personal way than Elijah was. And we can see that through some of the miracles that he performed. We can see how Elijah had a stronger, Elijah, sorry, had a stronger message of judgment to the people. Whereas Elisha's ministry highlighted the mercy and love of God toward his people. Elisha, was an agent of change. He stood for what was right and was completely unwavering in his stance for truth. No matter the consequences. Elisha was a man of humility, obedience, and faith. And as a result, he was mightily used in the miraculous. Um, I wanted to reiterate, I mentioned last week concerning Elijah, and that is that God has no partiality toward his people. So with Elijah, with Elisha, we can we can see that God didn't God didn't have a something special that they could do or that they were called to be that he doesn't have for the rest of his people. He is still looking for sold out people He is still looking for undistracted people and he's still looking for someone that is available so that he can flow through them. Availability is key. So that can be me. That can be you. We strive to be available to God in every area of our lives as we walk this walk. Elisha spoke into the lives of kings during that time. Elisha had influence with the kings of Israel and they also knew that he was someone that they could trust and count on to hear an accurate word from God, even though they were wicked kings following pagan practices. The kings that were ruling in Israel during um, Elisha's ministry are, I'm gonna just discuss them here really quick. The first one was Joram. He was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. So Joram partially did away with the worship of Baal, but he really had no desire to turn fully back to worshiping Jehovah God. So even though he did away with Baal worship, he never did away with the false prophets or other forms of idol worship that were being practiced. And Elisha rebuked him for following the ways of his father Ahab before him. And as we kind of touched on last week, um, Ahab was known to be one of the most wicked kings that ever lived. Um, Elisha um, also exhibited the everlasting kindness and mercy of God when he performed the miracle of providing the soldiers and their horses with water after they were instructed by Elisha to dig trenches that were miraculously filled with water without them seeing any wind or rain. He also prophesied of their victory over the Moabites and this was during the reign of Jorah. The next king was Jehu. He was a captain in Israel's army and Elisha was instructed by God to anoint him king to execute judgment on the house of Ahab. So God used Jehu to overthrow the wicked kings of, the wicked king uh, Ahaziah of Judah and Ahab of Israel. So, Second Kings chapter ten, verse twenty-eight states that Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. So, Jehu is well known for his overthrow of Ahab's dynasty. Jehu was the one who ordered that Jezebel be thrown from her balcony, which fulfilled the prophecy that Elijah spoke concerning Jezebel. Jehu performed all of these glorious victories in the name of Jehovah God. However, he did not tear down the high places that were in Bethel. The next king of Israel, Jehoahaz, he reigned only three months in Judah. Uh, He was just as wicked as the kings before him. He ended up being carried off in chains by Pharaoh Necho um, into Egyptian captivity. And then there was Jehoash of Israel. He was the next king. Ruling after his father, Jehoahaz, he ruled for 16 years. Elisha prophesied the three victories over the Syrians in battle under his rulership. Still, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Scripture says in 2 Kings thirteen eleven, he refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam son of Nebad, had led Israel to commit. So, throughout the reign of these Kings, even in all of their wickedness, there's not really a, a good, there's not really good that is said of them in at the end of their life. But even through all of that, we see still the merciful and gracious hand of God fighting their battles and also showing them that his kindness knows no limits. God used Elisha to inform, to instruct, to rebuke, to warn and exhort those that were in positions of political authority, and he still does that uh, that very thing today. God strategically places his people within areas of influence, to pray, to correct, to instruct high officials. We may not know who all of these people are, but... The truth is that God is the one that is ultimately in control. Even though we may not know who they are, they are very present. They're there. We see this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. It says, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of the world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings or presidents. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. So Daniel was showing us in this verse that anyone that is in a position of authority was set up there by God. Then it goes on to say in verse 22, he reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, For you have given me wisdom and strength, is what Daniel said. You have told me what we asked of you, and revealed to us what the king demanded. Even still, through the power of the Holy Ghost, when you in faith begin to pray, just like Daniel God gives wisdom. God gives strength. God reveals things that you otherwise would never know. He gives us wisdom and understanding to even know how to pray or how to instruct uh, political leaders. You don't have to necessarily through the power of the Holy Ghost. You don't have to even physically be there, but your prayer can change the course of world events. Do we believe that in faith? Your prayer can literally change the course of the world events. And that has happened in the past. It's documented. You could see throughout history, major, um, political events, major wars that have happened. But then behind the scenes, there were men and women of God that were praying and the angels of God engaging in, in spiritual warfare, truly changing the course of the world. First Kings 19, verse 19 through 21. It says, So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were twelve teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the twelfth team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So I just wanted to briefly touch on that cloak or that mantle that was thrown across Elisha's shoulders. Um, this is from Bible.org. It says this mantle was the official garment of a prophet. There were three types of mantles worn in biblical times. This particular one is the adoret, which is a cloak that could be made of animal hair and was a garment of distinction worn by Kings and especially by prophets. The mantle automatically marked a man as a prophet, a spokesman of God. It was also a symbol of sacrifice and commitment. The life of a prophet was not a life of luxury. The mantle represented a man's gift, the call of God, and the purpose for which God had called him. Throwing it over the shoulders of Elisha was a symbolic act denoting his summons to the office of a prophet, but it was also a sure sign of God's gift that enabled him to fulfill the prophetic office in ministry. This act by Elijah was a prophetic announcement that the gift of prophecy had been giving or would, given or would come to Elisha. It was immediately understood by Elisha even without words. And following that, we learn about Elisha. It says it at the end of that verse. um, He passed around the meat to the townspeople. They all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So Elisha really embodied and was the true definition of a disciple. So what does it mean to be a disciple that we can gather from Elisha's life? Second Kings chapter two, verse one says when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal and Elijah said to Elisha, stay here for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha replied as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elijah, sorry, Elisha, and asked him, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. But Elisha replied again, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together to Jericho. Then the group of prophets from Jericho came to Elisha and asked him, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. Verse 6 says, then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But again, Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. So we see through the first six uh, verses um, of this chapter that Elisha was adamant that where Elijah goes, that's where he was going to go. Where Elijah was staying, that's where Elisha was going to stay. In Elisha's mind, he had this mindset from the very moment that he was called, that 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 mantle was placed upon him, he had this mindset, I am going to reap and glean from you, Elijah, everything that I can. I am going to learn from you. I'm gonna know what you believe and I'm gonna live it out in my own life. He and his humanity made up his mind and that is exactly what he did. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 says, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, this is Jesus speaking now, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. So he was showing us that it is literally impossible to truly be a disciple of Christ without having that Elisha mindset, that adamant mindset that I am going to forsake all else and fix my attention, my heart, my spirit, everything that I am upon you. There's a verse in Proverbs I didn't write it down, um, but King Solomon was speaking and he said, "My son, give me thine heart." And that is the same measure that Jesus is speaking to us today. Give me your heart. That that means you know, give me your emotions. Give me your everything. Uh, give me your will. submit, I've given you free will, but submit your will to my will. That is how you can be my disciple. And that is how Elijah, Elisha showed us in that measure of discipleship. But the thing is, there isn't, there aren't varying degrees of discipleship, if that makes sense. I want to, I just want to hone in on this discipleship concept, because before Elisha even got to the part where he was being used so mightily by God he was a follower and he was a disciple and like I said there's no varying degrees it's like Jesus said you're it's either you're doing it or you're not so Elisha shows us that being a true disciple means a denial and a renouncing of the former life you once lived and a complete and total dedication to God, no matter how high the cost. And uh, we see that in a parable that Jesus spoke of. Um, it wasn't a parable. When the, um, when the rich man came to him and asked him, what can he, you know, what, what can he do um, to be saved? And Jesus said, you know, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And that was too high of a cost for him. Uh Truly being a disciple is that I'm truly dying out to who I am so that there is no cost that's too high. When we think of being his disciple in light of that understanding, sometimes we think of coming to church a couple times a week, paying our tithes, being involved in so- some sort of you know, spiritual or Christian activity. While that is a small part of what it means to follow, it is it's actually that. It is a small part of the entire picture. Being a true disciple is forsaking my own thoughts, my own way of doing things, giving up my rights and giving my all to Christ. And so that is what we're striving toward. And then Jesus said "Take that you have to take up your cross So he said, hating your father, mother, sister, brothers, your own life, and then taking up your cross to follow after him. So that means it's dying to myself and my own will and receiving and walking in the will of the father. It's being buried with him like we are. are. We're buried with him in baptism. But then it's rising up to newness of life where I don't look like me anymore. I don't talk and think like me anymore. We receive the Holy Spirit, which is truly an amazing gift. We're buried with him in baptism. We, we do that act, submitting to God's will, but then we walk away sometimes and we still think the way that we were thinking before. We never truly allow that burial process to take place. Being baptized and buried in Christ, it's not just a ritual. When we do that, we are truly in the spirit, renouncing our former life. We are saying, just like Jesus was dead dead, like he actually really did die. (laughs) And he actually really was buried. I was not, you know, he wasn't half dead. He was for real dead. And he was raised to to walk in newness of life um, in his glorified body. The same for us. When we are buried with him in baptism, we come up, that old man, is crucified. That old man is dead. And at that point, and this is how to to truly walk as a disciple, is taking on the nature of Christ. Galatians 4.19 says, until Christ be formed in you. So I want to look like Jesus. I want to talk like Jesus. And I want to lay hold on the promises that are in God's word and live them out in this evil and dark world. If we're not doing that, then what exactly are we doing? Because how effective or effectual can we really be? Imagine if Elisha kept, okay, well, let me just go back. I have some more affairs that I have to take. Um, I have to, you know, take care of, or, you know, my dad wants me to do this in the farm or whatever it may be. And missed that opportunity to truly follow Elijah and be that disciple that he needed to be, with the level of wickedness and darkness that was that was going on in that time period, the level and the measure of darkness that Elisha was facing demanded of him strict adherence. I mean, it it, it, it demanded of him to truly glean and to to follow after. Um, Elijah in the way that he did. And the same is true for us today. The level of darkness that we are dealing with, the measure, the gravity of what is going on in this world, and also the gravity of the fact that there are so many people that are dying and, and don't know God and that we're called to be those messengers demands of us this level of discipleship. Not only that, but in truly following after Jesus, that gives us the opportunity to lay fast hold on the inheritance that God has said belongs to the sons of God. So I want to lay claim on the, son, on the sonship in my rights as a true disciple of Christ. Uh, 2 Peter 3.18 says, um, grow in faith and in the knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. So when you see the strength of Jesus words concerning what it would look like to be a true disciple, I had to pause and think to myself, am I truly a disciple of Christ or am I just going through the motions of religion and Christian tradition? Because Jesus made it very clear that if we don't forsake all and follow him, then we can't be his disciple. And at the very beginning of him saying that in that scripture, it said that large multitudes were following him. So that's when he turned and said, if any man come after me and hate not his father, mother, et cetera, et cetera. So I have to ask myself, am I a disciple or am I a part of the crowd that was following him? I mean, I really had to sit there and think, am I living my life like he said it would be for a disciple, a true disciple, and what Elisha was modeling, or am I just following the crowd? A lot of people follow him for his hand, but Jesus was very pointed when he was looking for true disciples to sit at his feet and to seek his face. And that was the type of person that Elisha was. God chose Elisha and he chose Elijah to be his mentor. First Kings chapter 19 verse 15 says, then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came um, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be king of Aram. God was talking to Elijah at this time. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Mihola, to replace you as my prophet. So God gave Elijah that commission. Eli- Elijah didn't pick Elisha like, mm-hmm, you, that's going to be the one. No, God gave him that directive. John 15, 16 says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. So we do not and we cannot choose ourselves. If we have any ability, if we have any desire or hunger for the things of God, it all came directly from God. With him choosing us, though, comes and equipping to be effective and to complete the assignment that he has laid out for us. So how does the discipleship that we see of Elisha compare with us being disciples of Christ? Just as Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit, Jesus said concerning his disciples, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Those were Jesus' words. To lay hold on to those words of Jesus and to begin to live it out. He said that we would do greater works than even he did, because he was going away to his Father. We see we saw and we see when we read through the story of Elisha that he actually did double the miracle works than his mentor, Elijah. And just like Jesus said that he was going unto his father, so therefore greater works will we do, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind for Elisha to complete the work that he had started. When Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind, we see that Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen when he was taken up. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And we know the scripture, the Holy Ghost filled all that were sitting and they began to speak with other tongues. So we have received the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, direct, and empower us to do supernaturally what we could never dream of doing by our own human ability and strength. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But you see me, because I live, you shall live also. That's John 14, 18 and 19. So Elisha, he was a witness to how miraculous God works when he saw his mentor, Elijah, caught away. 2 Kings 2.11 states, as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Powerful. So Elijah was taken away; he was caught up um, into heaven. And through all of the training and equipping that Elijah did with Elisha, we can also see the value of godly mentors and spiritual mentorship. We also see how, in other areas of Scripture, how detrimental it is not to have that. Starting within a family unit, unit, we see the damage that can occur with no spiritual mentorship from parents to their children. Judges 2.10 says after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. We see the damage that lack of mentorship can do to a nation. Who did Joshua mentor like he was mentored by Moses? We see that there was no single, single ruler of Israel after Joshua died. Following the death of Joshua, we enter into the era of the judges. And we see some good come out of the judges, but then we read in Judges seventeen six, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see this again at the very end of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So there is immense, eternal spiritual value in godly mentors and mentorship, just like we see through the life of Elisha. God chose Elisha because the work was incomplete. There needed to be a continuation of the task ahead. And today, the work is not complete until he calls and catches us away. There has to be a continuation of the work and god will give he will give us of himself and he will use us with the goal of also development and training to take place of someone after us it's called a legacy so when god calls you just like he called elijah god already had elisha in mind and when god was ready to begin to you know mentor elisha through elijah He spoke that to Elijah. Go ahead and anoint Elisha. And the same will happen today. Elijah's ministry did not end the minute he threw his cloak around Elisha. He didn't go while Elisha was plowing the field, throw his cloak on him and said, all right, (laughs) you know what this means. I'll see you later. Right? There was a lot of mentoring that went into Elisha. And the Bible doesn't go into grave detail, but you can, tell, you can see it. And you can see it in the life that Elisha lived after Elijah was caught away. Elisha also shows us the importance of spirit-led successors. So he had a spirit-led mentor, and he was a spirit-led successor. We've been speaking of kings. We spoke of the kings briefly last week um, that were... Uh, reigning during Elijah's time and then we kind of gave a brief history of the kings during this time period of Elisha and we can see that spiritual darkness and issues arose after David on I mean there was no king like David David did what was right after that you see sprinkles of kings that did right But glittered throughout that time period, the same thing is said over and over of more kings, and it is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Elisha was not looking to make a name for himself. He wasn't looking for position or notoriety because he had a clear understanding that all of that can only come directly from God. Elisha had his goal to follow God's lead and we can see in the scriptures how he took what he had learned by sitting under Elijah and fully continued the work. He didn't deviate from what God wanted him to do. He was a spirit led successor. We see then as a result, the miraculous performed in and through his life. From 2 Kings chapter 2 through 2 Kings chapter 13, we see through the life of Elisha the following miracles. He parted the waters of the Jordan. He purified the water source of Jericho. Two bears were miraculously used in protecting him. Water for the army of Israel and victory over the Moabites. He provided... Um, the miracle of oil for the widow woman, the miracle of the uh, woman from Shunem having a son and then receiving her son back to life, the purification of the soup that was poisonous, the multiplication of the loaves for the people to eat, healing of Naaman, cursing his armor-bearer Gehazi with the skin disease, finding the ax that was accidentally dropped in the Jordan River, Striking an army of Arameans blind and capturing them, prophesying relief from the enemy and the famine, prophesying the death of Benadad and the rise of Haziel, prophesying Israel's defeat of King Haziel of Damascus. I just wanted to list those. We don't have enough time to go through every single miracle, but you can see when you read through 2 Kings just how powerfully God used him to perform the miraculous. But Elisha showed us that we do not have to chase miracles. We don't have to beg for miracles. We don't have to try to conjure up miracles or fake a miracle because we don't see anything happening like we want to. Elisha showed us exactly what this scripture says. These signs shall follow them that believe. He also shows us what the scripture says when it emphasizes that these are signs. So that verse says the signs will follow, but also they're signs. Signs point you in a specific direction. Signs provide needful messaging. Signs provide clarification and help us to know where to go and what to do. In our case, God will use the miraculous to follow us as believers as a sign to those that are lost. That there is a God and that there is hope in something greater and of more value than what they are currently experiencing. All of these miraculous signs that are to follow a believer have the exact same goal that they had during Elisha's time. And that is to point people directly back to the God of their father. In Elisha's time, pointing people back to the God of their fathers. In our time, pointing people directly to Jesus. Without that purpose, there is no real need for the miraculous. Jesus performed the miraculous to point Israel to himself and to point the Gentile world, the lost world, to himself. And the same is true for today. Elisha showed us the importance and value of asking in the will of God. And he also showed us the importance and value of divine impartation. Second Kings chapter two, verse nine says, when they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. Paul spoke to the New Testament church in Romans 1.11 11, and stated, for I long to visit you so that I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. And then Jesus gave us a wonderful promise in John 14.14. 14, yes, yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Why? Well, verse 13 tells us why. Jesus said, you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the father may be glorified in the son. So through these verses, we can see the benefit of asking in God's will. In God's will. This strengthens a believer in the Lord and it brings glory to the name of the Lord. It also shows us why sometimes our prayers are not or asking prayers sometimes are not answered. Sometimes when we're asking, uh, it's selfish, or it's not in his will, and it ultimately will not bring him glory. It may make us feel better for the moment. It may make us feel comfortable, but it's not asking in God's will. God shows us, though, through learning to pray and just continuing to pray, continuing to pray in the spirit and allow the spirit of God to mature our life of prayer that he will begin to direct our prayer so that we are praying in his will we're praying through the Holy Ghost that double portion of Elijah's spirit was divinely imparted to Elisha so we just talked about praying in the will of God for a second But there is also a power of that divine impartation so to impart means to give to convey to grant so with impartation there's a spiritual transfer of the spiritual gifts that only comes about through the power of the holy ghost spiritual leadership that are walking in a specific gifting or an anointing They can lay hands on you and impart that gifting to you. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. What Elijah's life shows us when it comes to spiritual impartation is that it comes directly from God, that it is bestowed when the person receiving it is under spiritual authority, as well as the person giving it is under spiritual authority with the head being Christ. And again, all of this is done to edify and advance the kingdom purpose. The Bible says, covet, you know, covet the the, the best gift. Well, why? <laughs> if if I, you know, it has to it has to be in God's will to edify, to edify those that are around you, to edify the kingdom of God. So, yes, I want to covet the best gift, but not so that I can just look good. Like, oh, I saw this spiritual leader and they're just doing such awesome things. Give it to me. Okay, well, it has to be for the edification of the body. It has to be for the edification and the growth of the, spirit, uh, of the kingdom of God. Advancing that purpose, and we can ask for God to purify our motives. Elisha, pray, he he asked for that double portion of Elijah's spirit, because again, what he was facing, what he needed to do, almost required it, and God granted that request. So when you see the things that are going on around you, you see the depravity that is happening in this world. And it starts to grieve your soul. Our flesh, we can see things that are going on in the world and just become angry about it and get real, like, picket sign-like and political. And then we become like the sons, you know, like, oh, strike them dead, Lord. And that is not asking in God's will. There will be no divine impartation for that. <laughs> but when you see the things that are going on in your world and it brings you to your knees and you begin to pray and God gives you a burden and you feel like, I want to do more. I want to I be able to be effective. I see what's happening in my city and it's grieving my spirit. Then when a leader lays hands on you and and imparts something into you and you're praying in the will of God, Lord, use me in this gifting so that there can be a supernatural change in my city and in my world, God will honor that prayer. God will do that. Uh, And first, the New Testament shows us that because there are other verses that talk about that as well. So there has to be a kingdom purpose for it. Elisha also gives us a glimpse into the reality of the spirit realm, the spirit world that surrounds us, often without us recognizing it. And I'm not saying that you have to walk around like just doing the mouse. I'm not saying your, your head has to be in the clouds, but we as people of god do need to understand that the spirit realm is real there is a spiritual war that's happening that often if we're not even just cognizant of it we we tend to relax on our spiritual disciplines and on our our role as people of god because we're just not aware of what's going on you see, again, a lot of things that have, I mean, the world is is brought to, into our homes just by uh, access, online access and, and social medias and just, there's so much information that's being pumped out. And sometimes ingesting all of that can jade our sensitivity to the spirit and what God is, is wanting to do and what God is doing. And we start to focus so much attention on, the fleshly side of it and it brings about fear and anxiety you know it, it brings about it couldn't bring about depression and it makes us numb and cold sometimes to being effective in the spirit if we're not careful by just not being aware and asking God to keep our spiritual senses high it can hinder our ability to pray effectively because we either won't pray or our prayers will be scattered prayers that aren't in the will of God at all. Second Kings chapter six, verse 14 states, so one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our, on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, "O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. I love that story. It's so cool. But it really gives us a glimpse into, like I said, what, that, that there is more going on than what meets our natural eye. And, and the word of God instructs us, not to pay so much attention to our natural senses, but to hone in on our spiritual senses. But that can only be done through prayer and the word of God and fasting and seeking after God. The more that you do that, the more heightened your spiritual sensitivity will be, which as a result means that the more effectual your praying will be. Your praying will shift from like this young man, oh, what are we, we going to do? You know, it was, it was just like real anxious praying. And Elijah, Elisha, he, he really, he had no fear at all. He's like, there are more than be with us than be with them. The young man probably looked at him and said, what are you talking about? I don't see any with us. It's just the two of us, right? And so then Elisha asked, open his eyes. God, open his eyes. That shows us that there is a need for the people of God to have their spiritual eyes opened that is a spiritual awakening that doesn't just automatically happen it doesn't just automatically happen because i have the holy ghost right that is something that is cultivated through consistency consistently praying consistently and i'm sure all of us i can attest to it when you're not being consistent with it it starts right it starts to fade a little bit it starts and so But God is emphasizing that need for our spiritual eyes to be open. The battle that is in this earth realm is won only through the power of God. Like I said, Elisha was completely unshaken by what appeared to be a very real threat to the eyes of the flesh because Elisha saw into the spirit. He boldly proclaimed that there were more that were with them and I want to make it clear there are more that be with us than that be with them. That is always the case for a child of God there. That is never not the case. (laughs) There is never more against you than there is for you. When we see situations that arise that are beyond our control at that moment, really we can, we can breathe because It is in those seemingly impossible situations that the glory of the Lord really gets to take center stage and that magnifies the greatness of God. Elisha showed us in this situation that complete trust in God leaves no room for the spirit of fear. He showed us that there is a critical importance and need for our spiritual eyes to be open. There are battles in the spirit that are not won because the people of God's eyes are not open to what's going on to pray effectively. And we can see that in the story even of the 10 spies when surely, surely they could take the land but they were so intimidated by the giants that they saw, so intimidated that they walked away quaking in fear, not even recognizing what Joshua and Caleb saw, that we are well able to subdue this this land. So our prayer should be for the Lord to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Don't let our spiritual eyes be dim and dark, especially in days like today. Matthew 6, says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. We need our spiritual eyes to be awakened to the spiritual battle that is going on in our world right now so that we can pray effectively. And so that we're not so focused on the external, but we focus our attention on the things that are not seen. Second Corinthians 4.18. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Scripture said we fix our gaze on the unseen. That implication is a consistent, steady looking at the same thing. It becomes a gaze to gaze by definition is looking steadily and intently especially in admiration surprise or thoughts our eyes are laser focused on what is unseen well if i can't see it how can i fix my eyes on it it's because it's not your natural eye it's that spiritual eye finishing up here on elisha's life we see that how his time ends is that he ends up coming down with a sickness that ends up taking his life 2 Kings 13, 14 says, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Even on his deathbed, God still had a work for him to do. God will use you for his glory through the end of your life. There is no expiration on the calling of God upon your life. We belong to God for his plan and his purpose to the point where we take our last breath and even after that. Elisha at the very end of his life performed a miracle by speaking to the king of Israel, putting his hands on the king's hands, telling him to open the east window and shoot the arrows that were in his hand. He spoke to him that the arrows were the arrows of the Lord's deliverance from Syria. So Elisha exhibited his faith in God and in God's will to the very end of his life. This shows us that You are never washed up or unneeded in the kingdom of God. Even though you may feel insignificant to yourself or you may feel like life is passing you by, no matter how old you are, you are never unneeded by God. God has a a work for you. The breath in your body is supplied by God for you to continue to walk in godly fulfillment and purpose. If you just could do one of those, if you could breathe, that means that you have a purpose still. Second Kings 13, then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of that year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the um, man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. (laughs) So even in death, God was using Elisha to bring about his will. That is something right there. (laughs) Elisha exemplified a life that was completely and totally sold out to God in the fulfillment of the call that God had given. So Elisha shows us what can happen in the life of a man or woman of God who follows God's lead, who trusts in God and has faith in God that God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. For this to be said of us in the 21st century, that they gave themselves completely to the cause of Christ and laid up treasure in heaven, which that will last throughout eternity. And that is all. Sorry we're three minutes over, but we started late. So (laughs) thank you all for coming tonight. God bless you. I hope that you could take some nuggets from what we talked about tonight and um, Complete the will of God in our lives. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. God bless you.